Hello there to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners. It's good to be back on the air, and I'm glad that I was able to keep my promise in letting you all know uh, from a couple of days back that my intentions were uh, to be on the air uh, before Christmas Day. So, from the looks of things, it seems as though many of you out there are eagerly wanting to learn more about Thomas Paine. How do I know that? Well, based upon the number of uh, plays that I've um, seen so far uh, from the prologue that um, that I did uh, from the other day, um, it, anytime I see a large number, it's a, a very good sign of encouragement. It has nothing to do with bragging or flaunting. That's not what the purpose, or I should say the mission, is all about. Anytime I see a strong number, in this case 36 plays so far from the uh, prologue, to me that is a very, very uh, strong sign that all of you, my faithful 101 listeners, are um, motivated to want to know more than what you may have been previously taught from a um, different setting, no matter how long ago that time was. Well, you know, it is hard to believe in uh, three days from now it'll be uh, Christmas. But one thing uh, my wife and I did uh, learn uh, when we were in Williamsburg uh, nearly two weekends ago when uh, we got to listen to um, a reenactor uh, portray Martha Washington, or rather I should say Martha Custis Washington, George Washington's wife, that um, in colonial times you didn't celebrate 25 days of Christmas. Prior to Christmas Day, uh, you were um, remembering everything that happened within the uh, within the year itself, both triumphs and uh, sorrows. Celebrating Christmas didn't begin until Christmas Day, hence the 12 days of Christmas that go from Christmas Day to January 6th. I'm not sure how some of our forefathers would think of the way we celebrate Christmas now. It's not all bad, but it's different. But then again, um, our forefathers weren't accustomed to um, accepting a dozen gifts or so. Even um, my uh, paternal grandmother once told me um, some years back, she said, you know, Kirk, I remember as a child getting an orange and then maybe just getting a couple of uh, gifts from our uh, stockings. She was referring to not only herself, but her siblings. But even just those few gifts alone were enough to be thankful for what was um, being provided. So in other words, we have to remember that not everybody at one time was entitled to a dozen gifts or more. But then again, there are people in different parts of the world who would give anything in the world to even have half a dozen gifts. So, you know, it's one thing to get 10 or 12 gifts, but we should just keep in mind that not everybody um, has that luxury. Is it fair to say that even uh, when Thomas Paine was growing up as a child in England, that he didn't receive 12 gifts on his birthday, for example? Probably not. He might have been lucky if he received maybe two gifts at best. So, this uh, podcast episode that we're going to be discussing in Harlow Giles Unger's Thomas Paine and the Clarion Call for American Independence is going to discuss his early uh, years of not just growing up, but 
from the time he transitions from a child and into a man. But of course, you know, the way I just described that, I'm sure some of you would say, well, gee, uh, couldn't you just tell all that in one podcast? That's wishful thinking. Um, but what I do know is that I have a lot of relative abundant information that will um, make you all appreciate, that will make you all appreciate uh, where Thomas Paine stood in the uh, overall uh, class sector of English society. So is it fair to say that maybe not all of our forefathers whom we've learned about or whom that we have learned about, whether it's in school or on television uh, documentaries, it's fair to say that some of them were not born into privilege, whereas others were. So our leadoff question is going to be um, a two-part one. So the first part of our leadoff question is going to be the following. In what year was Thomas Paine born? I'll give you a couple of choices. Was he born in 1737? Was he born in 1750? Or was he born in 1755? The answer is choice A. He was born on February the 9th of 1737. So, let me ask you this. Does anybody want to, want to take a guess at who, at uh, which king would have been ruling England? When I think of kings in England, most notably during the American Revolution, there's always one king that comes to my mind, and that is none other than uh, King George III, who was uh, officially coronated in October of 1760. But it turns out that uh, King George III or was not um, king of England at this time. As a matter of fact, he, he would be born just shortly after Thomas Paine, believe it or not. But King George III, his grandfather, was at the helm, at the helm of the monarchy, George II. Interesting enough, um, if... When I think of uh, forefathers and when they were born, of course, you know, here's Thomas Paine born in 1737. John Adams, 3,000 miles across the ocean, was born two years earlier, 1735. So was Paul Revere. George Washington, five years earlier in 1732. But there were a couple of uh, prominent forefathers born in 1737, most notably Mr. John Hancock. And then the one that most people probably know more about, uh, for those of you who were with me last year when we talked about signing their uh, lives away, about the fame and misfortune of the men who signed the Declaration of Independence, uh, a man by the name of Charles Carroll of Maryland, he was born in 1737, and he was, you know, the only Roman Catholic, the only Roman Catholic, the only signer of Roman Catholic faith, rather, I should say who signed the Declaration of Independence and would also be the last signer to die. So those are just a few. Um, John Hancock, Charles Carroll, and Thomas Paine are the three that come to my mind um, in terms of, the, of uh, coming into the world in 1737. Part two question uh, is the following. Where in England did Thomas Paine hail from? Did he hail from London? Did he hail from Isle of Wight? Did he hail from Portsmouth? 
Did he hail from Bristol or did he hail from a place called Tetford? You got five choices there. That's a lot of choices, but of course, I know when we all think of England, what are, what are we very, very inclined to think of? The capital, London, where all the comings and goings are taking place, you know, parliaments there. I mean, why else would we think differently? But I will tell you this right now, Thomas Paine is not from London. He is from Tetford. How do you spell Tetford? T-H-E-T-F-O-R-D. Tetford is a uh, market town, or and it probably still is today, but when Thomas Paine was born, it was a market town or a settlement area where people frequently gathered, not just for uh, social purposes. That, that really was not the primary reason when we think of gathering, but they were gathering uh, to purchase and sell necessary provisions and goods. Remember, folks, market town, so we could also say marketplace. So, yes, Tetford is one of those places where people are going to come to uh, purchase goods as well as uh, sell uh, essential goods uh, for the greater public. Tetford is also known as a civil parish. Anybody know what a civil parish is? A civil parish is one that is... Um, part of, um, or rather I should say, a civil parish is one that is of, of administrative purposes for uh, local government matters. You know, civil, you know, civilians, people. So a civil parish, whenever you hear of that uh, phrase, think of administration, government administration for uh, all local government affairs. Now, where would uh, Tetford be in relation um, to London? Well, I'll get to that part here shortly, but before I get to that, I should point out that uh, Tetford is located in the Breckland district of Norfolk. You know, for those of you who live in Virginia who are listening, isn't there Norfolk, Virginia? And isn't, that, isn't Norfolk, Virginia not far from, you know, Virginia Beach? Portsmouth, Suffolk. That's right. So, believe it or not, um, Tetford is um, in not just, not only in the Breckland district of Norfolk, but Tetford is uh, located in the Shire County of Norfolk. And if any of you want to know what Shire or Shires refer to, that's spelled S-H-I-R-E-S, Shires are referred to as uh, administrative divisions of land. So in other words, they are administrative divisions where land itself is broken, is evenly divided or just distributed based upon the number of uh, people uh, living in a particular uh, community setting. But Tetford itself can be found roadwise between Norwich and London. Okay, so um, for those of you who want to know exactly where Thomas Paine's hometown of Tetford was in relation to London, it is north of London, about 70 miles to the north. I do know of one particular city that is north of London, and it's Liverpool. And whenever I think of Liverpool, I think of two things. Number one, Liver Liverpool was a uh, for a long time was a major industrial hub. But Liverpool went about producing... Um, 
a famous rock and roll band where all four of its um, members were originally from. John Lennon, George Harrison, Paul McCartney, Ringo Starr, The Beatles. So whenever I think of Liverpool, England, I think of The Beatles. You know, uh, let me ask you this question. Did Thomas Paine have any siblings? Well, it turns out that Thomas Paine, believe it or not, folks, and I was um, stunned to learn this, Thomas Paine was the only surviving child of Joseph and Francis Paine. I'm not sure how many uh, children uh, Joseph and Francis Paine lost, but what I do know is that only one of their ch- their only surviving child would not only uh, make it past infancy, but would go on to um, live a, a long life. You know, it's one thing for a family to have had, say, eight children back in these in this time, and with the hopes of maybe that four or five would make it past infancy and live a long uh, life. Of course, there would have been no guarantee with that, but the fact that Thomas Paine was the only surviving child is remarkable unto itself. What I found even more remarkable was that Thomas Paine's parents each had different religious upbringings, but yet they still had a good marriage. Well, you know, when I think of England during this time religion-wise, what is the most predominant um, church? The Church of England, a.k.a. the Anglican Church. So is it fair to say that one of Thomas Paine's parents is a member of the Church of England? That is correct. Uh, His mother, uh, Francis Paine, was a member of the Anglican Church. His father, on the other hand, Joseph Paine, was a Quaker. There's nothing wrong with having religious diversity, but at the same time, religious diversity is not welcomed um, in all homes, and, and it's and it's probably not welcomed within the greater Anglican Church uh, community. If you attend the Anglican Church, I think it would be fair to say that most officials in the Anglican Church would want your family pro-Anglican. What I do know, uh, real not to get off track here, but I should point out that if you if you lived in uh, colonial uh, Virginia, you know, let's say you were of the Baptist faith and Baptists were vigorously persecuted for their religious beliefs. But if you wanted to practice uh, being that of a Baptist, that's fine if you want to practice your faith, but guess where your taxes are still going to go? To the Church of England. So it's a double-edged sword right there. Well, what line of work was young Thomas's father employed in? Does anybody want to take a guess? Thomas's father worked as a corset maker, or I should say a tailor. A corset maker um, was someone who specialized. Corset makers could do uh, both men's and women's clothing, but believe it or not, Thomas uh, Payne's dad specialized in making, or I should say producing, women's clothing, most notably wardrobes, wardrobes aimed to support their upper bodies. The corsets, on the other hand, were thin strips of wood, or not just wood, but of thin strips of, say, horn or whalebone that were used to better secure a wardrobe intact, I should say prevent mishaps. Joseph Payne's 
stay, in other words, for corset making is stay making. This, his, this job of his was confined to uh, the home where the Payne family lived, being that of a cottage. And for those of you who don't know what a cottage is, it's a home that's detached by itself. It's a small house. So in other words, there's no other, um, we call it, uh, units detached to it. It's just uh, confined to its, its own, um, what do you call it, uh, foundation. Is it fair to say that Thomas Paine's family, where do you think they might stand on the um, greater um, social scale in terms of where their um, rankings are in, in society? Are they rich? Are they middle class? Or would you say they are lower middle class? I would have to say probably based upon what I read that Paine's family falls into a lower middle class. Is it fair to say that Thomas Paine's family is having to rely on um, on someone from above in terms of being able to um, use land for um, for ensuring that um, food provisions get met? Yes, they are having to uh, rely upon a um, on a person with the title of nobility known as the Duke of Grafton. Anytime you hear of someone like, you know, the Duke of Windsor, of course, the late Prince Philip, uh, Queen Elizabeth II's husband, his title was the Duke of Edinburgh. If you're a duke, you have it very, very well made. You are in the upper tier of uh, nobility status. Well, as I said earlier, you know, Thomas Paine's parents had... Um, had different religious upbringings, but were they respectful towards one another's religious differences? Uh, yes, they were. And young Thomas himself benefited from both faiths. Frances, being Thomas's mother, favored having her son be baptized and confirmed in the Anglican Church, whereas Joseph allowed his son to attend Quaker meetings with him through Francis's consent. Is it fair to say that by attending different uh, religious faiths, is it fair to say that not only did Thomas have strong knowledge of both faiths, but is it fair to say that he uh, was very well educated when it came to reading the Bible? Absolutely. Where did uh, Thomas Paine attend school from 1744 to 1749? I don't expect many of you all to know it and that to know this, and that's okay. But um, well, let me ask you this: Did uh, did the community of Tetford have a school for Thomas Paine to go to? Yes, it was known as the Tetford Grammar School, and he went to school at a time when it wasn't considered mandatory by law. You know, wouldn't you want your child to have an education? Sure. But we also have to keep in mind, too, that not every family can afford to send their child to a fine school. What do I mean by a fine school? Well, uh, going to, say, like a, a private academy. So if you can't send your child to a private uh, institution of higher learning, you've got a couple of choices. If there's a school in your community, like in the case for Thomas Paine, yeah, that's great. But... Um, Many of children often got educated at home from their parents. 
I guess that was that would have been better than having no education. Now, from the time frame from 1744 to 1749, um, for Thomas Paine, this was also a very uh, challenging time. It might be fair to say from an emotional standpoint. Each spring in Tetford, when Thomas Paine would be coming on his way en route to school and leaving from school, Thomas Paine witnessed each spring from 1744 to 1749, the Tetford Lent Assizes. Does anybody know what the Tetford Lent Assizes were? They were a yearly ritual, or I should say a yearly event, where public trials and executions took place, drawing people from all over. You know, yes, uh, court when court was in session, that drew... Um, people from all um, from all areas to attend because people wanted to know hey who is on trial people want to know why is the defendant on trial for I mean there's a reason why the defendants on trial and it's also you know going to court is also a way to catch up with people that maybe you hadn't seen in some time but executions what could people be getting executed for of course, usually when I think of executions, I tend to think of people being executed for murder or for theft, just to name a few crimes. But for Thomas Paine during this time, he is witnessing scores of people getting ready to be hung. And not just getting ready to be hung, but they're being dangled. And they could they be dangled as a means of entertainment? to the crowds below, yeah. I mean, the crowds are the ones cheering on that these people get executed. Obviously, nobody's coming to their defense. Is that a good thing or, or a bad thing? You know, it'd be easy to say that, it, that it's a good thing, but you might be surprised to learn uh, some things that maybe would not come across your mind. So, while going... So yes, Thomas Paine was witnessing scores of people getting ready to be hung as well as being dangled while going to and from school. But the Tetford Lent Assizes, the primary focus behind this, uh, of this um, I don't know if I'd say event or um, annual ritual, was that it focused on hanging thieves to death versus murderers. You know, it's one thing to steal someone else's prop, to steal someone else's belongings. That's a big deal. But one thing I do know is that in Colonial Williamsburg, they've always told us at the Capitol that if you uh, stole, if if one man stole another man's horse, that's like the equivalent of stealing um, a man's livelihood. Because if we think about it, if we if when we think of uh, transportation in colonial times and fast transportation, a horse was the way to go. So stealing another man's horse was a big deal. So if you were found guilty, you got branded and you had the letter T on your thumb or perhaps on the palm of your hand. The T represented theft and people knew that you had been guilty of a crime in the form of theft. But what happened if you did it a second time? Then you got executed. No buts, no ifs. 
So is it is it possibly fair to say that um, people whom were getting hung or, or getting executed from the Tetford Lent Assizes, could many of these um, people who had been found guilty of um, acts of theft were perhaps first-time offenders? Perhaps so. And these executions for thievery, believe it or not, folks, did not exempt children. And we're talking, folks, children as young as 10, 12, 15. So for Thomas Paine, I think it's fair to say that seeing all this is going to leave some emotional scars. So how else did the English government crack down on its people besides conducting public executions? Well, the government allowed rulers like the Duke of Grafton to have unlimited rule, or I should say authority, over everyone else below in Tetford, meaning that the Duke himself could charge outrageous prices on rents to where 2,000 people below him, including the Payne family, would be left with minimal to no income where feeding families became a daunting challenge for survival. Think about this. The Duke of Grafton had unlimited powers, so he could charge whatever rate he want, wanted for rent, and who's going to reap in the profits? The Duke of Grafton. And the 2,000 people under his command are pretty much left to, left to fend for themselves. So really think about it. The Duke of Grafton and members of the upper elite within the government, they're only concerned about their well-being. They're not really interested in the vast majority of people who will probably never attained to um, higher tier status of society. It doesn't make it right, but this is what's going on at this time, folks. The Duke of Grafton was also responsible for appointing all local officials, including Tetford's two members of Parliament. Well, is it fair to say that, that both members from um, Tetford are high up on the social scale? or, uh, or the, uh, what we call greater societal scale of uh, England, yes. So is it fair to say that perhaps these two members of Parliament won't show a whole lot of empathy towards the masses of people below? I hate to say this, but probably not. The Duke of Grafton also would go about overseeing what could and couldn't be taught in school and church to restricting what books and newspapers adults could read. Well, that's a lot of restrictions right there. So think about this. Think about it, folks. There's really no such thing as true freedom of the press. I mean, you know, yes, we are very fortunate to live in a time where we can read um, content and we don't have to worry about someone from above, for the most part, telling us what we can and can't read. But there was a time when that was going on and... And, and in my opinion, that was an unfair uh, restriction, or I should say an unfair, um, what do you call it, um, an unfair means of uh, depriving someone of, um, of their freedoms, of personal freedoms, I should say. The Duke of Grafton also went about curtailing what preachers of multiple denominations were allowed to preach. So I think it's fair to say the Duke of Grafton has his loyalties religious-wise with the Anglican Church or the Church of England. You know, remember, if you are a member of the Church of England and you um, are a loyal member and you, um, and you swear your allegiance to the Church of England, 
then you'll be allowed to worship freely within the confines of the Anglican Church. But if you are not a member of the Anglican Church, not only will your tax dollars go to support the Church of England, but you know, good luck trying to practice your faith freely because it's not going to um, go as smooth as you'd like. Uh, did a large majority of people under the Duke of Grafton's reign have very many fundamental rights? I think that's a no-brainer right there, but I just wanted to throw that out. No, uh, considering, for one, many of the people resided on leaseholds rented out to the Duke. But for these people, their opportunities were severely restricted, meaning they would never own property nor exercise the right to vote. So think about it. These people are being controlled on purpose. Is it fair to say that the Duke of Grafton, along with members, along with the greater upper tier of uh, English society, they feel that the only people whom have a right to be within the, they feel that the only people whom ought to be um, involved with the government or the government's affairs are the wealthy and the well-educated. Those whom are not wealthy, not well-educated, should not be allowed to have any kind of say. So you could see a lot of black and white right here, folks. But the worst part about this all, folks, is that the Duke's subjects lived in constant fear, knowing that whatever they said could result in the loss of what, folks? The loss of shelter. It's hard enough that you're surviving just to make ends meet. But if you lose your shelter, that is the roof you live under, where else are you going to go? The Duke isn't going to tell you where to go. You're going to have to find that out for yourself. So, so yes, it, it's bad enough that you can't own your own property or exercise the right to vote, but knowing that you're living in constant fear, knowing that whatever you say not only could be used against you, but it could mean the result of losing your shelter. That is the roof above you that you, um, that you make your living in. How did young uh, Thomas Paine take in what he saw daily as a child? Well, for starters, he asked questions to his parents about people's places in society. Secondly, the injustices he saw or witnessed, such as the Tetford Lent Assizes, each spring over time led to personal scars, knowing young people were sent to the gallows or executed for the pettiest of offenses. But by age 13, which would be about 1750, young Thomas Paine knew firsthand internally that the Duke of Grafton, the monarch, being King George II, and the Church of England were all responsible for allowing, or I should say to promoting widespread inequity gaps between rich and poor. Well, it's like I said uh, just a few minutes ago. The uh, Parliament, uh, those who have high uh, titles of nobility, the monarch, the Church of England, they're only looking after them for themselves. They all believe that only the wealthy and the well-educated should be running the government, and that also means controlling everybody else below, which could pretty much mean 90% of English society. Because those who are wealthy and well-educated only encompass a very, very small number, perhaps at best between 5 to 10%. So think about it, folks. 90% of the greater population is being deprived of the most uh, fundamental rights. 
In my opinion, when I think of fundamental rights, I think of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. It's fair to say, though, based upon what I read in this book, that even as a young child, uh, for when Thomas Paine was a young child, he didn't seem to miss out on anything. He was asking questions at a very early age to his parents like the following. Why should anyone have powers to control others, even hang them, simply because he was first born in a particular household to a particular set of parents? This probably will come up again, but I just found that pretty amazing to think that someone as young as he was had the um, fundamental understanding or let alone knowledge to ask such a powerful question. So for young Thomas here, he was seeing firsthand his government's abuse of powers, which included depriving many many who were um, in the lower uh, tier um, class um, sector of British or of English society of their basic fundamental rights, like I said, life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness. But for Thomas Paine, it, why should someone high above control the masses below to where there are no checks and balances curtailing the power itself? So in other words, shouldn't there be a check and a system of checks and balances where the government should be um, better uh, regulated as to what fundamental powers it ought to have and what powers perhaps it ought not to have? He could be on to something. You know, for all the questions that Thomas, that young Thomas asked his parents, they replied to his questions with such, response, with such responses as follows. The most unique one that I thought was, that I thought is worth sharing as follows. It was God's way. In other words, uh, people below uh, can't control for themselves what those above have in plan for the greater society, for better or worse. Maybe by saying something, as they say, less said the better, perhaps saying something that didn't go into such um, long explanation to Thomas was a way of saying, look, we do empathize with you, son, but even we ourselves don't have the power nor authority to make any revolution, revolutionary changes on our end. But perhaps with time, maybe some things might change, but it just won't be today or let alone tomorrow. So what happened to, Tom, to young Thomas at age 13? Did he, um, did he marry or did he become apprenticed to his father's business? Uh, choice B, he became apprenticed to his father's business being in the stay-making um, profession over a, th over a three-year course. But by age 19, being in the year 1756, Thomas went on to become a privateer. Does anybody know what a privateer is? I'll let you all think about that here for a second. Nothing beats a good cup of tea. Matter of fact, weren't we talking about the... Uh, Tempest in the teapot from the previous podcast about how the Boston Tea Party sparked a revolution. And didn't I say before that um, that drinking tea was not a popular um, beverage mo for men, whereas it was for women? Yes. But hey, times are different, and tea still is popular to drink. 
And the best part is we're not fighting a war over tea. But around, um, around the time Thomas Paine was 19 years old, being in the year 1756, he goes on to become a privateer. And what a privateer does is that it, it's um, a position where, um, where uh, one um, transports gunpowder from the hold, or what we call the bottom deck of a vessel, upward to the gun deck being the deck on the actual being the upper deck on the vessel itself where the guns themselves were placed so thomas paine would go on to serve in the french and indian ward the french and indian war aka seven years war aboard a vessel for two years so think about this folks thomas paine was born well before the seven years war began but by 19 years, old, 19 years of age, he's seeing firsthand a conflict that is going to become global. And it's not only going to affect the people in England where he's from, but it's also going to impact people 3,000 miles away in ways that over time he's going to be able to empathize with those people. Well, after two years at sea during the Seven Years' War, uh, where did Thomas Paine venture to next? Did he return to Tetford, or did he go on to London? He went to London and resumed his work in the staymaking profession. But whenever he wasn't working, he was making the most of his time, spare time, that is, by attending lectures on uh, subjects like astronomy to physics at London's Royal Society. You know, it's interesting, you know, Royal Society, shouldn't that be a, a society that only allows for, um, for uh, children or, or young people who come from rich families to attend um, lectures? Well, I, I would have thought the same thing too, but believe it or not, uh, Thomas Paine is able to um, make his way um, into um, this facility and listen in on lectures and also acquire books from their uh, library. So coming to London is a huge step in the right direction versus Tetford. Interesting enough that London's Royal Society would be uh, was famous for uh, publishing Sir Isaac Newton's Principia Mathematica in 1687, 50 years before Thomas Paine was born, to hosting Benjamin Franklin in 17, 1752 when he conducted his famous experiment on electrical nature of lighting. So Thomas Paine was 15 years old when... Um, Benjamin Franklin came to London. Now, of course, you know, I would, it's gonna, about late 1750s, that's when Thomas Paine goes to London uh, to um, not only um, uh, attend lectures, but also um, be involved in the uh, greater um, London Royal Society, um, what do you call it, um, movement. And Thomas Paine isn't missing out on any, anything by being in London. He is acquiring immense knowledge, not only in the subjects of astronomy and physics, 
but he's also acquiring immense knowledge in other subjects like uh, philosophy to Greek and Roman history. So it could be fair to say that Thomas Paine is learning about um, past um, republics from the ancient uh, civilizations of uh, Greek and Roman days. Was Thomas Paine still employed as a staymaker by the time the 1750s were coming to an end? Yes, he was. But ironically, in 1759, Thomas Paine took on a new part-time um, line of work in being a, a preacher within the Methodist Church. That's a bold uh, step in terms of part-time work, considering that his primary profession is in uh, clothing as a staymaker. But is it fair to say that Thomas Paine favors religious diversity? Yes. Does he respect the fact that his mother is of the Anglican faith? Yes. But you know what? He's got enough um, religious toleration in his blood that his parents find it okay, more than likely find it okay for him to um, take part in a uh, different um, form of religious faith. The years between 1759 and 1760 were marked by highs, lows, and tragedy. The high for Thomas Paine came in 1759 when he got married. And besides getting married, he went about opening his own staymaker's shop. The low moments sadly came a year later in 1760 when his business failed. And if that was bad enough, his wife died from having um, giving birth. She died from childbirth complications and sadly the child died as well. I don't know how anybody uh, could have gotten over something like that. After all, you think about what Thomas Paine lived through. He lived knowing that his parents had lost other children who did not make it past infancy, and somehow Thomas has been the miracle child for uh, Francis and um, Joseph Paine. He truly is the miracle child, but yet Thomas Paine is reliving what his parents lived through, lived through and knowing that he himself has not only lost his wife of less than one year, but also lost a child. He's probably not going to be the only one to lose a child or a spouse from complications of childbirth. Many other people sadly will, will um, witness this um, unfortunate circumstance. How did Thomas Paine go forward work-wise in 1761? His late wife's father, whom worked as an excise man, or what we call a sales tax collector, got Thomas a job of the same title in the brewing industry. This is uh, very interesting here, folks, about, what, about this um, line of work as an excise man. You know, we think of when we think of taxes and um, people needing to file their taxes and and ensuring that taxes get collected timely. We we think of that as being something that should be an easy job. We should assume that people would know when to get their taxes in on time. But even in today's time, you know, there are people who do request extensions, and that's not always a bad thing. But sometimes. That can be a not-so-good thing when uh, people do not um, 
get their ducks in a row straightened. So for Thomas Paine, his new job is going to require visiting breweries once per month. I don't know how many breweries, it, it, but it was X number of breweries per month, where he would go about estimating the overall reduction of ale per each barrel from the same time of the last visit. So in other words, the uh, reduction of ale per each barrel will also allow him to calculate the tax that the brewers themselves would owe the government amount-wise. I'm not a, an accountant myself, but I'm trying to give you all the best um, explanation for what this job requires. Well, would you say that Thomas Paine isn't would you say being a tax collector, or in this case an excise man, are you immune from anything that could bring surprises of, that are not for the better? No, you're not immune at all. So basically, Payne's new job wasn't immune from violence, especially when it came to catching smugglers. You know, when I think of smugglers, remember from a Tempest in a Teapot, how the Boston Tea Party sparked a revolution? You know, the smugglers who were bringing in um, Dutch tea and selling at a cheaper rate versus uh, tea from the East India Company that Britain was, so, that Britain was uh, in such desperate need to sell because there was so much tea um, rotting in the warehouses. Well, for these excise men... It was one thing to catch a smuggler, but just because you caught the smuggler, it didn't mean that you're um, that you were um, that you were automatically immune from potential death threats or perhaps um, violence in the forms of being in the form of being assaulted. Many excise men endured severe injuries, to including death. So the best way to avoid injury often meant accepting bribes. You know, even accepting a bribe is not a good thing, but I must point out that if it meant, um, if it meant uh, ensuring that you were not going to face uh, further injuries or let alone a greater chance of death, you probably had no other choice but to accept the bribe and, and, and get the heck out of uh, the facility as quickly as possible. So, yes, one, in order to avoid being injured, one could accept a bribe. But they also would have participated in what's called stamping. And I'm not talking about getting um, your stamped, uh, getting a stamp placed on a piece of paper. Stamping basically was what was referred to as where men stayed at home and estimated reduction in ale per barrel. So in other words, they had to come up with their own random figures knowing that they weren't accurate. But they did it as a means of ensuring their safety. You know, Thomas Paine was involved in the stamping, and sadly he was dismissed in 1765. What legislation had Parliament passed in 1765? And if I'm not mistaken, for those of you who were with me when uh, we discussed uh, Harlow Giles Unger's other book, Amer uh, Tempest, American Tempest, How the Boston Tea Party Sparked a Revolution. We talked about a variety of uh, pieces of legislation, but what 
which one did that Parliament passed in 1765 really uh, caught, not only caught, but angered many of the colonists. The Stamp Act. And remember what the Stamp Act sought to do? It sought to place a tax on all legal documents, like marriage licenses, um, paper um, um, cards, you know, because, you know, you got paper cards, anything that was um, tangible in terms of uh, paper uh, goods. But not only was it on the legal documents that the tax uh, was intended to be placed upon, but also a variety of industrial and consumer goods. When I think of consumer goods, that could also mean like, you know, perhaps um, consumer goods like, you know, um, lead, uh, uh, paint, uh, glass. I mean, anything that a consumer, him or herself, could purchase. But the revenue alone from this act would, uh, was intended to help protect the colonists 3,000 miles away against Indian uprisings. Remember, folks, you know, Parliament was left with about a 100, and, the British government was left with about a 145 million uh, pound deficit, whereas in the colonies in America it was about 1 million in pounds. I mean, that's a huge uh, gap, to say the least. So the English government wants to see to it that, um, that her subjects help pay uh, the cost since they went above and beyond to protect their subjects against Indian uprisings. Of course, when, um, <laughs> when the colonists subjected to all that, that's when King George III gradually started calling his subjects ungrateful subjects. So uh, the people in England, you know, here, when we think of the Stamp Act, we think of how, of the negative impacts that it had 3,000 miles away across the ocean in colonial America, but even the people in England themselves weren't immune from legislation like the Stamp Act. And ironically, a majority of Englishmen were sent to debtors' prisons for not paying taxes to inciting large anti-tax riots. So we think of debtors' prisons, we think of you know, men not being able to pay their debts off on time and they would, you know, stay in jail for as long as it took until their debts were paid. So wouldn't it be fair to say that Thomas Paine was an ardent supporter behind the anti-tax anti -tax protests? 100% um, indeed. Did Thomas Paine ever work again as an excise man? The answer is yes which I thought was interesting. On February 19, 1768, he got appointed to Lewes in Sussex. Lewes is spelled L-E-W-E-S. There is a place in Delaware known as Lewes, Delaware. And we do have a county in Virginia, east of where I live, called Sussex County. There's Sussex, England. You see the connection, folks? So in Lewis... Payne's new excise, excise post was a, a good fit for him because stamping had become the ultimate norm behind avoiding injury and death. And Lewis itself, folks, was a town known for long-term opposition to monarchy and an advocate of pro-Republican government. 
So we should keep in mind, too, that not everywhere in England were people living in uh, towns or even cities where they advocated a uh, monarchy system of government. Did Thomas Paine ever get married again, folks? Do some of you think yes, or do some of you think no? The answer is yes, he did. On March 26, 1771, he married Elizabeth Olive. But three years later, in June of 1774, they separated. They basically just grew apart from each other. 1774 also uh, was a year that led to his dismissal from the excise post for being absent without formal permission. Hey, it's one thing to be out of work, but if you don't notify your manager that you're that you're going to be missing work because of being sick, that could be uh, what we call an occurrence, something that that has already happened once, and if it happens again, it can become an issue to where management can decide, hey, uh, John Smith uh, has missed so many days without notifying us that we may have no other choice but to dismiss him. Thomas Paine also lost his tobacco shop uh, business. And believe it or not, he almost went to debtor's prison. How did he avoid it? He sold various household possessions. So if he hadn't done that, he, put, he more than likely would have rotted away in debtor's prison to where he might have died. So, you know, it's one thing to, to be sent off to debtor's prison, but if you don't have um, enough uh, possessions and your belonging to sell. Who's to say that you um, can't? Who's to say that you might not be able to avoid jail time? So thank heavens he had enough household possessions to um, to avoid um, going the road of jail. We're not far from uh, completing this uh, podcast episode, but um, I want you all to uh, think about this particular person. I don't know if he'll be mentioned again or not, but all of us know that Thomas Paine published um, a famous pamphlet. But is it fair to say that he would go on to publish other pamphlets first before the most famous one that we all know about? Absolutely. Because after all, you got to start somewhere. But who is uh, Thomas Cleo Rickman? Is he a native of Lewis? where Thomas Paine would um, work as an uh, exciseman? Yes, he was. Cle was Thomas Cleo Rickman, was he a publisher of uh, political and religious pamphlets? Yes, he was. And what are pamphlets? They are small booklets that contain information about an individual uh, subject or topic, I should say. But it turns out that Thomas Cleo Rickman would become a very close... Um, friend of Thomas Paine's to where he would go on and serve as a mentor or a, a confidant. In other words, he was the one that probably uh, helped um, persuade Paine to write, to start writing uh, pamphlets about causes that he felt were very worthy to address. So come the summer of 1772, Thomas Paine would write the first um major political work of his time being a 12-page article known as the Case of the Officers of Excise. The article itself demanded that Parliament push for better pay 
to improved, better working conditions. You know, it's one thing for someone to have a job, but if their wages aren't sufficient to where if they have a family to think about, then it is going to be hard for that worker or workers to make a decent living. And don't, and don't we all deserve to work in uh, good uh, working conditions? Nobody should have to work in uh, conditions where the, um, where the, um, what do you call it, where it's filthy, polluted, um, where it's just so oppressive to where people could be dying on the job left and right. So it's fair to say that perhaps Thomas Paine, this first article of his being the, um, the case of the officers of excise, it could be his version of being um, an early whistleblower, demanding that Parliament do more to help those from the lower classes of society have the same um, entitlements to better pay and better working conditions as those of the upper tier uh, levels of the greater English society. Well, we've covered a lot of ground uh, in this podcast, and when I'm on the air again next, we're going to talk um, a little bit more of um, about Thomas Paine in the sense of when he will be arriving to America. And we should keep in mind that, um, that um, his journey to America would not have happened had it not been, had it not been for meeting someone in particular who was um, of significant importance who was uh, in Europe around the time, um, just a few years shy of when America would eventually declare its official separation from England, the mother country, and the country where Thomas Paine himself was from. Thank you again uh, for listening as always, and I look forward to being back on the air again soon. Um, I doubt I probably, probably will be on the air before Christmas, but my goal is to be back on the air with you all uh, sometime shortly after Christmas. But wherever you all live in the world, be safe this holiday and have a wonderful Christmas. Take care for now and um, stay safe and good night to all of you.